This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd. Coming up, we'll explain why Missouri has more control over Kansas City's police department than the city does. Plus, tens of thousands of homes in St. Louis include a racial covenant, which bans black people from buying them. They've been unenforceable for decades, and most homeowners have no idea that racist language is still tied to their deed. It hadn't occurred to me that they would still be officially there. (laughs) Because, you know, it's 2021. (laughs) How racial covenants segregated neighborhoods and left a lasting impact. But first, some headlines. Enrollment in Kansas public schools has dropped by more than 15,000 students since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. As Suzanne Perez of the Kansas News Service reports, many of those families switched to homeschooling. During a normal year, about 1,400 Kansas families newly register to homeschool with the State Department of Education. In 2020, that number more than tripled. And the trend doesn't seem to be slowing. Experts say the switch to remote learning during the pandemic persuaded more families to try homeschooling long term. Some want more flexible schedules. Others have safety concerns or oppose mask mandates. Lance Zumi is the author of a new book titled The Homeschool Boom. What we've seen because of COVID in terms of the increase in homeschooling, I think is really going to continue. It's not going to be a momentary blip. This fall, a record 8 million students are being homeschooled across the U.S. Some education advocates raise concerns about the quality of homeschools since there is little state oversight. Federal regulators want to know more about utility Evergy's relationship with an activist investment firm. Advocacy groups have raised concerns that the investors may push Evergy to make changes that could raise electricity costs for most Kansans. Brian Grimmett of the Kansas News Service reports. Regulators want to know more about the makeup of Evergy's board and the role Elliott Management played in recent changes. Last year, Elliott Management asked Evergy's board to increase spending on new energy and transmission projects or consider selling the company. Shortly after, Elliott gained two seats on the board and Evergy proposed an $8 billion spending plan. Hudson Munoz with the Communications Workers of America Union says those tactics could lead to higher energy bills and follow a pattern used by the investors. And during that two-year period, they do what they can to increase the price, the valuation of the company. They extract cash, usually through buybacks and dividends, and then they move on to their next target. Avergy says Elliott has no more say at the company than any other investor. Kansas City is one of the few major cities in the U.S. that doesn't oversee its own police department. Instead, the department is controlled by the Kansas City Board of Police Commissioners, whose members are mostly appointed by the governor of Missouri. There have been efforts to change that over the years, but there hasn't been much movement on that lately. In a story published yesterday, Peggy Lowe explores why. She covers law enforcement for KCUR, and she's here to tell me more. Hi, Peggy. Hey, Noemi. So why did you do this story? So ever since I started covering the uh, Black Lives Matter protests, that was back in May of 2020. Everybody remembers that terrible time. It was right after the killing of George Floyd. And protests erupted here. And one of the many things that activists have called for, activists from BLM, civil rights groups, those, you know, a lot of folks here in town have said they think that the Kansas City Police Department should be controlled 
by city council, by the mayor. And that happened so many times. I thought, well, let's go back and look. Where is that effort? Will that ever happen? A year and a half after those protests, many of them, many, you know, very violent. Like, what's up? So what does Kansas City have control over when it comes to its police department? Actually, very little. Um, As you mentioned, I mean, the Kansas City Board of Police Commissioners uh, oversees the police department. Of the five seats on that board, four are appointed by the Missouri governor, the fifth being the mayor. Now, as we've talked about here, too, before, uh, Mayor Quentin Lucas this year tried to gain just even a little bit of local control by changing up the budget. So essentially, um, the city council has to spend 20% of its budget on the police department. Again, that's state law. So um, Lucas tried to go in and say, okay, anything we spend above 20%, we get to determine it. It isn't just in the hands of the police department. City council and the mayor should have some say on what any of that extra money entails. And they said, we want it to be used for social programs, for criminal justice um, initiatives, for anti-violence plans, things like that. But as we know, uh, Mayor Quentin Lucas's plan failed. Um, A judge uh, overrode that, and he sided with the Board of Police Commissioners. So they still have all the control. So do you have any other examples of something a city would normally have control over that Kansas City doesn't when it comes to police? Of course. So for instance, there's patrols in any given part of town, right? Um, The police department right now in Kansas City is saying that they can't put patrols downtown because they just don't have um, the number of officers that they need. So that's upsetting to like the city council members whose district is, you know, downtown. So it's patrols. It's academy classes. How many people are coming in? It's the diversity of those academy classes. It's how much equipment they buy and what kinds of equipment. I mean, there's just so many things that a police department gets to decide. So so what is the history behind Kansas City not having local control over its police department? Well, like many cities in the country, um, after the Civil War, the state governments took over the police forces of any given city. So up until the early 30s, um, Kansas City was run by the state. Then there was a home rule that was approved by voters. So for a short time in the early 30s, Kansas City ran its own police department until it became so wildly corrupt under then-political boss uh, Tom Pendergast. uh, The state had to once again take over that control. And since 1939, the state of Missouri has controlled the Kansas City Police Department. So who is trying to give Kansas City more control over the department and what are they arguing? Well, that's what's so interesting, too. Like I said here at the top of our interview that, you know, since the protests after the George Floyd killing, so many people have said here in press conference after press conference after, you know, protest after marches that they want local control in Kansas City. I'm not seeing much activity going towards that effort. I talked to Gwen Grant. She is president and CEO of the Urban League, and she has gathered up a a coalition of civil rights groups, and they talk about the local control issue. But what she told me is that, first of all, they'd have to have like 3.5 million at least because they're going to have to do a statewide ballot measure. They know this legislature would never give this to them. And then they would have to get, you know, get it on the ballot. They would have to get it approved by the voters. And that's just a really enormous effort. And there's just not that momentum right now. 
What about arguments for the other side, for control of the police department remaining with the state? Well, for instance, the rank and file um, police officers prefer the way the department is run right now. And back in 2013, when then Mayor uh, Sly James had a task force and and considered going to local control because that's the year St. Louis went to local control. Um, the police union said at that time, uh, this is the best way for us. Uh, the This is in the right hands. State governments give us this um, steadiness. They, you know, watch the purse strings better. And quite frankly, you know, the Republican majority Missouri legislature is much more pro-police than, say, activists and some others here in town. How common is it in the U.S. for a big city to not have control over its own police department? It is not common (laughs) to be in the situation that Kansas City is in. The only other city in the U.S. that has some semblance of um, state control still is Baltimore. That said, Baltimore right now is moving towards local control. Um, the, the voters have approved it. The mayor has uh, set up a task force. And now basically the argument in Baltimore is just what will the police department look like? Because it will be under local control. So Kansas City is the only holdout in the U.S. that I have found so far. Peggy Lowe is an investigative reporter for KCUR. Thanks, Peggy. Thank you, Nomi. Coming up, how racist housing policies have shaped Missouri. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This is Kansas City Today. UMB Private Wealth Management is a division of UMB Bank that tailors financial planning services to help you maximize your assets and protect your legacy. Everything we do starts with you because there is no one-size-fits-all financial planning strategy. Your UMB experience begins with us taking the time to get to know you and understand your financial goals. Then we customize a detailed yet flexible plan that helps you achieve them. At UMB, your story is always our focus. Learn more at umb.com slash wealth hyphen management. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Racially restrictive covenants were used for decades to keep black families out of white neighborhoods. In 1948, a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision stemming from St. Louis made those covenants unenforceable, and 20 years later, they were outlawed. But in St. Louis, restrictive covenants are still tied to some 30,000 properties, most without the homeowner's knowledge. St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff reports on how those covenants kept neighborhoods segregated and why they still matter today. Julia Allen lives with her cousin Sheila in a one-story brown brick house with a metal gate out front. It's about a half a mile east of where they grew up, in the Ville neighborhood in the 1950s. She sits in her living room on a recent muggy morning, telling me what it was like back then. It was a happy place. I call it my small town, okay? Even though it was a segregated neighborhood, we had everything that we needed within walking distance of that small area. Allen knows more than most about how racially restrictive covenants prevented black families from moving outside that segregated area. She gives tours as the co-founder of a nonprofit called For the Ville. But she never thought to check the records on the home where she lives with her cousin. Out of curiosity, I looked them up for her and filled her in on what I found. And there is a covenant. <laughs> Sheila, you got a covenant on your house. <laughs> I'm not surprised. What now? You have a racial covenant on this house. Which means? 
which means you weren't supposed to buy this house. (laughs) Sheila bought the home well after the 1948 U.S. Supreme Court decision ruled racially restrictive covenants unenforceable, and the Fair Housing Act made them illegal 20 years later. By the time she moved in, most people had forgotten about these old documents. But there are covenants still on the books. Isn't that something? Allen's home is one of tens of thousands of properties across St. Louis with a racially restrictive covenant. They were commonly put in place throughout the first half of the 1900s, peaking in the 1920s. Today, they're buried in land records at City Hall, often on hard-to-read microfilm. In most cities across the country, it's impossible to tell exactly how many covenants exist because most records aren't digitized and record-keeping practices vary. But University of Iowa history professor Colin Gordon stumbled across an index of all the restrictive covenants in St. Louis. At his home office in Iowa City, he sifts through boxes filled with carefully organized papers. So this is the, the document that we discovered that enabled us to get into it all. This is just kept by one of the title companies. Gordon and his team used that list to create the first comprehensive map of racial covenants in St. Louis. The map highlights the two key ways they were used. One strategy focused on subdivision covenants. Developers commonly attach these to deeds in new neighborhoods before the first house was even built. You know, they're aspirational and exclusionary, but there are no African-Americans living here. This is in stark contrast with the covenants put on existing homes near the Ville neighborhood. There, a real estate group urged white homeowners to sign petition restrictions. These prohibited people from selling or renting to black families in the future. The petition restrictions say it's to the mutual benefit of signers to, quote, preserve the character of the neighborhood. These are much more sort of defensive and frantic because the African-American community is growing. And... You know, the White Realtors Association and white homeowners are frantically trying to figure out how do we stop it. Gordon says it matters that these covenants are still on the books because they're largely to blame for the racial wealth gap that exists today. He says they helped create the Del Mar Divide and they laid the groundwork for other discriminatory practices such as zoning and redlining, which came later. Driving around Julia Allen's Northside neighborhood, we pull up to an unassuming brick duplex at 4600 Lapidy Avenue. Okay, let's see. Slow down a little bit. This is the Shelley house. This is the house that started it all. J.D. and Ethel Shelley, a black couple, moved to this home in the 1940s. Soon after, a white homeowner across the street sued based on a covenant. But with the help of the NAACP, the Shelleys took their case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. That's the landmark 1948 civil rights decision I've mentioned. The court ruled that states could not enforce racially restrictive covenants. It's historic. And most people don't even know about the Shelley House or restricted covenants or the laws that, you know, that that made the change so African-Americans could move further north and outside of the Ville, outside of Mill Creek outside of Pruitt, Igo. All of those were segregated African-American neighborhoods, but the court decision had unintended consequences too. It spurred large-scale white flight. Without racial restrictions, white families abandoned the North Side for the suburbs. The mass exodus drained the tax base in North City. Property values collapsed. Later, many black families left too. Today, most of the homes that had covenants on them north of Del Mar are vacant lots. In southwest St. Louis, where new subdivisions were built with racially restrictive covenants from the ground up in the early to mid-1900s, 
White people bought the homes, and the neighborhoods have largely stayed white. Longtime St. Louis Hills resident Rick Palink has always been interested in the history behind the charming neighborhoods' pitched roofs and pink sidewalks. I mean, the architectural beauty of all these homes are all different. No, no two homes are, are alike, and they're just, just beautiful homes, you know? He says the aesthetic of St. Louis Hills was created by design. When developer Cyrus Crane Wilmore plotted out the subdivisions, he attached a long list of restrictions. Sunrooms can only extend eight feet, no chickens or livestock, no commercial businesses, and no homeowners or renters other than those of the, quote, Caucasian race. Palink used to be a trustee in the neighborhood, and he says over time, all the restrictions lost their authority. They're just not relevant, so there's no purpose on updating them. It's a historical document, you know. Not everyone thinks of it as just historical, though. Clara Richter, another St. Louis Hills resident, pages through her home's deed and finds the associated covenant. Oh, goodness. She's heard of restrictive covenants before, but she didn't notice that language when she and her husband signed the paperwork to buy their home about five years ago. It hadn't occurred to me that they would still be officially there. (laughs) Because, you know, it's 2021. (laughs) Richter says it's disorienting to see it attached to her home's deed, but she says that feeling is necessary. People should experience that discomfort and then do something about it. You know, history can be ugly, and we got to look at the ugliness, too. We can't just say, oh, that's horrible. Um, You know, but I feel like it should be, like, in a museum, maybe, or in school books, but maybe not still a legal thing attached to this land. The impact that racially restrictive covenants have had on neighborhoods in St. Louis is far-reaching, and undoing their damage will take a long time. But Richter hopes amending the covenant on her home will be a first step toward making the neighborhood a more welcoming place for all people. I'm Corinne Ruff. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read more about local control of the Kansas City Police Department and racial covenants in St. Louis, visit kcur.org. Tomorrow, we'll hear how some homeowners are trying to get rid of the racial covenants on their properties. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. 